the Republican Party is much more threatened when Trump goes away. Trump is like the Band-Aid that is keeping it together at this point. And I think if Trump is not there, I think the Republican Party just breaks apart into multiple pieces. Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Tegan Goddard. Tegan is the founder of Political Wire, one of the earliest and most enduringly valuable political news websites, and one that I personally visit the most. He also runs Political Job Hunt, Electoral Vote Map, and The Political Dictionary. Before taking on Political Wire full-time, Tegan was managing director of an investment firm in New York. Before that, he was policy advisor to Senator Don Regal and Governor Lowell Weicker. I much enjoyed the conversation, learning more about Tegan's path in political entrepreneurship, as well as how he thinks about being editor in the time of Trump. Highly recommended. So first my sponsor, then my interview with Tegan about Political Wire. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Tegan, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? I have been interested in politics pretty much since I was 10 years old, which was the 1976 campaign when Jimmy Carter came out of nowhere and managed to win the White House. And I remember tracking that campaign on yellow legal pads with my father as we counted electoral votes on election night. And pretty much from that moment on, I caught the political bug and have been just fascinated with elections, with politics, with gaining political power, and how you then use that political power to uh, hopefully do good in the world. I know about you because of the site that you publish called Political Wire. I guess it's a, you call it a blog that just has updates throughout the day, pretty much real time, of significant political events that people would want to be aware of. How would you characterize it? Yeah, no, Political Wire, I guess it is a blog, although it was a blog before there were blogs, Political Wire. But what it was, was my inspiration for the site goes all the way back to when I was in college. I would read the Wall Street Journal every morning. I was an economics major in college, and I fell in love with the Wall Street Journal, and particularly on the front page of the Friday edition. This is back when newspapers were paper. <laughs> and uh, on the front page of the Friday edition, the right-hand column was called Washington Wire. And Washington Wire was just a fantastic column, which essentially aggregated interesting nuggets out of the journal's Washington Bureau, things that didn't make their reporting during the week. I thought it was just a perfect format to really find really interesting things that were going on in politics. And so when I started Political Wire, I wanted it to be modeled after that, but obviously it's on the internet. So it has additional capabilities such as linking out to source materials. I also didn't limit myself to just Washington. I cover politics much more broadly. And I also don't limit myself to one news gathering organization like the Wall Street Journal. I pretty much find interesting things that ha are happening in politics all over the internet, whether it's a podcast, whether it's a post on social media, whether it's another blog, or whether it's a mainstream news outlet. I find very interesting things about politics pretty much everywhere I look. And so what I try to do is put those together in a very digestible format 
so that at any given time during the day, someone can come to Political Wire and find out what at least I think are the most important stories right now in politics. And it is a site that is updated around the clock. And so most of my readers do come back time and time again during the day. I've heard many people who refresh the site 10 or 12 times a day. It's very gratifying because I found on the internet an awful lot of people who share my similar passions for politics and what I think is important right now. It's been quite a ride, but it's been you know just about 25 years that I first started experimenting with this. I know that when I go to clean up my browser, I often have to close like eight or nine different political wire windows. I don't know why I can't go back and just use the same one, but I've noticed that happening. So I think I might be one of those people. I also think that like in certain ways we are peers in the sense that we both have a similar amount of gray in the beard. I think you started following politics in the mid seventies. I remember going to vote with my dad for McGovern in 72, but I was uh, probably seven or something. Another way that we have a little bit of a similar path and intersection of interests is that I started getting interested in computers at a young age when my parents gave the family an Apple II Plus. And I had heard that you had an early computer too. And so I, I had a path always of learning to be a programmer and, and I majored in computer science and then did political software. Whereas I, I understand that you also were interested in technology and got an early blog going. Oh, no, ab absolutely. I, I have, my parents, one of the, one of the best decisions my parents ever made in terms of impacting my future career was buying me in 1984, an Apple IIe. It had 40 columns of text. It had one floppy disk drive, a one-sided floppy disk drive. And there was no way to attach it to the outside world, but I soon got a extremely slow modem, which I could hook up to it. And I could explore the world of uh, online bulletin board systems where you would dial into these things at, at night. We had these things called war dialers, which would try to find where other computers were. You'd give it a range of numbers and you would dial away in the night. And then in the morning you would wake up and find that oh, your computer found a bunch of phone numbers that were, you know, attached to computers and that you could then potentially uh, sign up and log into these bulletin board systems. I was a bit of a self-taught programmer at the time as well. And I, I actually created home automation programs, some of the earliest home automation type programs. And what I did is I distributed those on these bulletin board systems through a method called shareware, where if people enjoyed the software, they would send me a paper check through the U.S. Postal Service, and I would receive that at my parents' house. And over the course of many years, I made thousands of dollars selling these little programs that I had done. And it was at that point that I just realized how extraordinarily powerful the computers were, but how connected computers could really change everything. And so I had graduated from college. And when I was a research assistant at the Federal Reserve Board in Washington, D.C., I accidentally stumbled upon the internet for the first time. I didn't realize that this terminal that was on my desktop was connected to the outside world at all. We were not told that, but I, I managed to find the pathway to the outside world and explore all of these discussion groups on Usenet I found it just incredible. And so as soon as I could, as soon as the the internet became much more mainstream, I was one of the first political sites up. The predecessor to Political Wire was actually called Political Insider, my co-author and I, of a book that we had written. After that book was published, we discussed possibly writing another book. And I was much more interested in actually creating a website very similar to what Political Wire remains today, but it was this idea that you could create a political briefing, a political news briefing. And what happened was there were very few people in my geographic world that were just as interested in what might be on the front page of the Des Moines Register or the Dallas Morning News or the San Francisco Chronicle. But I found that with the internet, I could explore these publications, even though 
this was a time when most of these newspapers did not actually put up their full newspaper online at that, this point. But I could find these articles and I could put them together in a daily briefing that I actually compiled on a commuter train as I was going into New York City to my day job. And I would put these up. And before too long, I noticed that there was a community developing of people who were just as passionate about politics and who actually also cared what was in the Des Moines Register that morning. And it was the type of environment, the type of news environment that most other people wouldn't find out for two, three, four days, sometimes a week later, that story that was in the Des Moines Register. But because you had this ability to get this information, I found it incredibly powerful. And so this news briefing that we started that was originally called Political Insider and that soon morphed into Political Wire, it just became a very popular way to pull together fellow political junkies, political activists, people who worked in politics for a living, because this was a place where you could really understand what's going on with politics. And we also had a lot of very, very smart people who were part of this community who would come together and, and we'd learn, learn from each other um, about politics. And so it was fascinating, but that was all due to the internet. And it, it really does show you what a long way it was from that Washington Wire column in the Wall Street Journal. The internet made so much more possible. And, you know, I've been doing it ever since. I think it's always so interesting when you go kind of backwards and look at how someone got to where they are. Like you add the wire part from Washington Wire, you take the kind of entrepreneurial interest that gets kind of your appetites get gets wedded a little bit by getting money from selling shareware. You have the, a tech background, you have a, the political thread. That could have developed into a lot of different things, but in you, it becomes a site that a lot of people that really pay high attention to politics, whether they're professionals or junkies, go all the time. Yeah, no, it's, it's amazing. Over the years, I mean, I have you know, subscribers of my site who are U.S. senators, who are members of Congress, who are the television hosts that you see every day. Even a Supreme Court justice is a regular reader. And that is a really remarkable thing, particularly since the old path to become, say, a political journalist or to get involved in the political media meant that you would go work for a small newspaper somewhere, you know, maybe in upstate New York, and then you'd slowly work your way to bigger markets. And then ultimately you might be covering the city council for a city, Hartford, Connecticut. And then you'd slowly work your way up. And then maybe after 20 years, you'd be able to write about national politics. This allowed me, I'm not a journalist even, it allowed me to get in the middle of political media and kind of bypass all of that to create a site and to develop an audience that was really passionate, really smart and interested in these ideas. And, you know, the internet made all of that possible. So it's a fantastic time to live, to be able to do this. And people have done this in all different areas of interest. I like to equate it sometimes if you go back 25 years ago and there used to be uh, newsstands with magazines of every different niche. You'd have magazines about cooking and about crafts and about various sports and things like that. And the internet replaced that old newsstand. And there are so many different niches that have kind of created, you know, ha have developed and, and built communities around them. And politics is one of them. So I, I feel super fortunate because it's really, even though it is my full-time job and has been for the last 15 years, it is not a job per se. It is something that I just truly enjoy doing and probably would do anyway. So let me ask you about sort of the editorial judgment that you have to use every day. You have a really a knack, I think, for both finding the news that I think people would be interested in and couching it in a way that is arresting. I found myself for years sort of relaying something that I got on your site to say my father. And then after a while, recently, maybe a year ago, I showed him the site and then I found that, okay, he's reading it all the time and I can't anymore give him the news because he's giving it to me in advance. And I can tell exactly where he got it from because of the timing and so on. But 
what is your process and has it changed over time for figuring out what you want to feature and how you want to talk about it? Yeah, it's it's interesting because every once in a while I'll get an angry email from somebody saying claiming that I'm biased in some way and my response to them is always well when did I ever promise to not be biased? You know, I've never promised that. I've simply promised to tell you what I think is interesting. And that's why my name is on the site. It's what I think is interesting. And so my judgment is really kind of the the secret sauce behind this site. And I don't really overly engage in partisan politics a lot, but it's very clear. You can, if you read my site long enough, you can see where my own biases are and the audience kind of builds from there. And, and, you know, it's changed over the years um, as our politics has changed and our politics has grown more partisan in this country, but it is, you know, really for the most part, how do I do it is I, I, it's like sitting down in front of that old Washington Wire column in the Wall Street Journal. And every Friday, I would finish it and say, that is amazing. Like, that is an amazing collection of interesting things that I didn't necessarily know. And I feel so much smarter about politics. And so every single time I, I, I work on Political Wire, that is my goal, is to find things that I find extremely interesting that I think others will find interesting, but that offer some insight into our political world that maybe somebody hasn't thought of. And so I, it gets harder the longer the site exists, obviously, because as more and more people read it, I, I think more it's harder to surprise people or it's harder to find things like that that are so interesting. But because I enjoy politics and because I enjoy the nature of what politics is, which is how to gain political power to achieve certain means. The more I continue with that, every morning I wake up and I try to make the site interesting. You know, I try to make it as interesting as I can for readers. And so because I would be a reader myself if I wasn't the publisher of it, that that's really what drives everything. What I think so many journalists get caught up in is they get caught up in this idea that they need to be quote down the middle, or they need to be fair by both sides or even handed. And I don't think that as humans, any of us, first of all, what is down the middle? Just that decision introduces biases into how you cover the news. And so I don't pretend to not be biased. I am biased in favor of those things that I find interesting. And sometimes Democrats will find my site much more interesting. Sometimes Democrats will find my site annoying. <laughs> I will be featuring news that doesn't make them feel very good or featuring polls or, or things like that that doesn't make them feel very good. But at the end of the day, that's, you know, I, I can't be swayed by a day's worth of criticism because somebody has taken something the wrong way. All I've ever promised is to provide what I think is interesting. I'm very fortunate in this fact that there seems to be a lot of other readers who enjoy that. Is there a category of things that you purposefully leave out that might be interesting, but don't seem like what you want to put out there? I actually don't censor myself very well. And in fact, I try to put out things that are accurate. I try to, you know, when there are, for instance, if there are partisan polls, polls sponsored by parties or, or, or their organizations, I do try to caveat those or, or to not feature those sometimes if they're not interesting. Speaking of polls, I actually try to feature polls less often than I once used to. And that's pretty much because if we're focused on the 2024 presidential election and we're a year out, I think we've got plenty of data that suggests that polls this far out are not very predictive. The polls are interesting because they may tell a snapshot of this time in our political history, what people are feeling right now, but they're not very predictive about what's going to happen a year from now. You know, as we get into the 2024 uh, presidential campaign, I will also feature polls, but it's unlikely I'm going to feature that many polls from Wyoming or Montana or Massachusetts, because those states are fairly predictable in terms of how they're going to vote in the presidential election. But there are going to be six or eight 
swing states that are going to be extremely important and that we're going to pay an awful lot of attention to the polls from those states. So I'm not going to run very many polls from the state of California regarding the presidential race. There is going to be an interesting Senate race next year in California, which I will obviously cover. So those are the types of things that I try to take out. I'm not interested in being completely comprehensive. So if you're going to read Political Wire and hope to get every single poll that's been released, that's not what I do. There are other places where you can find every single poll, but I find it much less interesting for my readers to feature certain polls. I've talked to a lot of people who have political newsletters or followings on Twitter or any of the social media sites, and they become very obsessed often with the feedback loop, with the numbers, with how each post is doing. Do you, how much do you track that and how much has that taught you about how to phrase things or what to carry? Or, or is that not uh, how you go about things? Well, that's an interesting thing. So what I have found over the time, even though a, a political wire post, uh, it's not uncommon for a post within a few hours to get a thousand comments on it. I find that those comments are not really representative of the overall audience. There, there are certain people that like to comment on posts. There are certain people that like to tweet something or put something on social media. There are certain people who will email me, but that none of those is necessarily representative of the overall audience. And so once again, I, I tried to pay less attention to specific criticisms that I might get Sometimes they're extremely useful and sometimes I make mistakes and I love that feedback loop for those purposes because I can correct things really quickly and make sure that um, people are getting the best information that they possibly can. I don't really obsess about a lot of that feedback. Obviously, I'm always interested when a post gets an enormous amount of traffic, you know, right after the uh, 2012 presidential campaign, Political Wire uh, broke the story. And I don't really f try to break stories that much, but a reader of mine stumbled across Mitt Romney's transition website, which he would have launched had he won the election. And I managed to take tons of screenshots of that website before it was taken down. And that became an extraordinarily big story. I mean, millions of readers within a single 24-hour period because they found it so funny that Mitt Romney had a transition website because he thought he was going to win that election. Now, obviously, you and I both know that he was simply preparing for the event that he did, and that website had probably been put together months earlier. But nonetheless, the story was that Romney was so sure he was going to win the election that he had a website that he was going to launch. But anyway, those types of things are extremely interesting. And so I obviously, I love when you get a post like that. But but I'm also not so concerned with having some post go viral because what I find is that the readership that matters most to me are those people who come back to the site every day, who come back to the site five times a day to be able to see what's important. And those are my most valued readers are the people who are just regulars. So I try to do everything I can to aim towards that audience rather than the drive-by people who might have seen a click that Matt Drudge put up on his site or that, you know, another type of post like that that just went viral for some reason. I tend to focus on those readers who are the ones who keep coming back. Those are the ones who typically subscribe to the site, who become members of the site, who get all of these extra features. If they do subscribe, those are the readers that I focus on. How much of your posts come from people who are giving you tips? It's, I, I know a, a lot of publications have a, an email or a text for something like that. Hey, tell me what, what, what scoop you have out there. How much of it is that? So that's a great question. A, a lot of people wonder, how on earth do you get all of these interesting things up so quickly? And people tend to tell me that they learn things so much earlier on Political Wire than they would by reading the New York Times or the Washington Post sometimes. And the reason for that is actually quite simple. It's not that hard and it's not that big a secret is that I have an awful lot of people who email me and tell me about them. I have journalists who are very proud of an article that they've got coming the next day and they tell me and they provide a link. It's going to be here and it's going to publish at 5 a.m. And so those are the type of things that make my job very easy. It's still up to me to decide whether or not I think it's worthy of putting on the site, but I get literally hundreds of 
recommendations every day, some from journalists, some from politicians, other political junkies, some of my readers are tapped into various places. And and that's what makes it a really interesting and vibrant site. It's what allows me to find those stories. There might be a story that happens, you know, in Fresno, California, that's a really interesting political story that doesn't make the national media for two, three, four days, but on political wire, you read about it almost in real time because someone has pointed me to it. And I thought it would be interesting to any political junkie who reads political wire. So this is like a two and a half decade sport for you. Um, Do you sometimes find it to be an obligation? Do you have your days where it's like, oh crap, I have to make my posts. I got to spend time searching for this or is it mostly kind of a joy? It's entirely a joy, truthfully. I, I have never found it a burden, not even once. I have an insatiable appetite for politics. I would be reading this news anyway when I'm on vacation. I was literally halfway around the world hiking in Nepal, and I was still updating Political Wire from the Himalayas because I find it super interesting. And I, I still want to know what's happening and what's going on. I find it extremely interesting. I find it extremely relevant. I find it very important for just our everyday life and for the type of country that we're living in. The one reason probably that Political Wire has been around for so long is that I have never tired of it. I really don't ever see why I would stop. It's And politics is just infinitely generative too. I mean, there's just... There's never an end. You think that you think there's a lull and something crazy happens the next day. So what's interesting is when I actually did quit my day job, I formerly worked on Wall Street about 15 years ago. I quit my day job and I made this my full-time business. And when I was evaluating that decision, I wrote down a list of pros and cons. And there were a lot of reasons why I wanted to do this as my full-time business The only one that I could think of that was a negative was what happens if politics gets boring all of a sudden. And obviously, if you look at the last 15 years, that has not happened. But your point is a great one because will politics ever get boring? I'm not so sure it will. It's always relevant and it's always important. We are not in the era of good feelings either. (laughs) We, We definitely are not. We definitely are not. I believe I've read that you worked for... Senator Regal and Senator, and was he also Governor Weicker? Governor Weicker, yeah. Yeah. Tell me about that real political experience working for politicians and how that influenced or didn't influence you in this. Oh, it definitely, it definitely influenced me um, a great deal. So I was, you know, since I was a child, I was interested in politics and the, I worked for Don Regal when he was chairman of the Senate Banking Committee. So I was on the Banking Committee staff. We were creating legislation and we were passing legislation and creating new laws and dealing with some of, you know, very important issues that were hurting our banking system. And this is back in the time just after the savings and loan crisis, which cost Americans a fortune to bail out the savings and loan industry. And so I found it extremely interesting to see how the sausage was made, to see the fights that happened in in politics and to see those power struggles. It was a fantastic experience. And Senator Regal told me my first week on the job, uh, we were sitting in his office with a bunch of my colleagues and I was the new guy. And he told me, that he goes, there's just one rule here, which is when we're sitting in this office, I want you to tell me absolutely everything you think. If you have an idea, if you think that I'm wrong, tell me what's, tell me what's happened. We're going to hash that out in this office. He goes, but in return for having a seat in these discussions, when I make a decision, that's the end of it. And I found that a really interesting way to manage a staff. He was the one who was elected. He was the one who had the power due to his seniority. He was the chairman of the banking committee. And yet I was able to get a seat in these really important discussions. And that was fascinating. One of the other things that I learned at that time was as I was sitting in the row of chairs behind the senators on the banking committee is that I remember thinking one day that each one of these senators 
their power was all derived because they were from somewhere else. They were not from Washington, D.C. And so that is what actually encouraged me to return to my home state of Connecticut and work for Lowell Weicker, who was the governor, because I was like, you know, it's really interesting to see what's happening in Washington, but it's much more important to know where these people are from and to what is driving them and the pressures that are on them. Don Regal was a Democrat. Lowell Weicker had been a Republican senator who had actually left the Republican Party and became an independent and won the governorship in Connecticut as an independent and was in the process of putting forward the Connecticut's first income tax in replacing the sales tax with an income tax. And it was a very important public policy decision, one that I firmly believed in, in terms of managing the state government much more uh, appropriately. And again, I got a seat at the table and I worked on a lot of economic development issues around the state and watching the forces on him. And he was unique in the fact that he was an independent and that he had not a single member of his own party in the legislature. And he had to somehow create majorities with the Democrats and the Republicans in the state legislature in order to pass his initiatives. And I found that extraordinarily interesting as well. At the time, I had thought that I might be interested in running for office as well. And due to to an awful lot of corruption that I saw in uh, Connecticut state politics, I quickly realized that that's probably not for me. And so I went and went in a different path. But obviously, as you can see with Political Wire, I've stayed involved in politics ever since. Regal, sort of a regular Democrat and Weicker, when he was Republican, was pretty liberal Republican. Is that is that help locate where you are or how would you characterize your own partisanship and ideology? That's an interesting question. You don't always get to choose who you work for. So I can't say that I was gung-ho about either of them as I didn't disagree with them. I probably agreed with more than I disagreed with in terms of their views. I would say what I take from Lowell Weicker is that I am somewhat of a maverick in my views, that it's harder to pin me down sometimes. Although I think that's looking over the course of the last 20 or 25 years, it is increasingly easy to place myself on the political spectrum in the era that we live in now, simply because I don't believe that you can treat Donald Trump, for instance, as just another Republican politician. I enjoyed the 2012 campaign, Mitt Romney against Barack Obama. I found that incredibly fascinating. I think you have two men who put forward their views on how they should run the country. And Obama had a four-year record that he was running on. And I found that an extremely interesting campaign. You could debate tax policy. You could debate healthcare policy. You could debate all of these great issues of our day. That is not the type of politics that we're in right now. I mean, Donald Trump, when he ran for re-election, didn't even have an agenda. The Republican Party had no platform that year. It, it was really a cult of personality. Donald Trump running for re-election to do whatever Donald Trump wanted to do. And that changes everything in terms of how you look at politics. When Donald Trump has members of his own party, so like at the at the time, Senator Bob Corker, who was the head of the Foreign Affairs Committee in the Senate, said that Donald Trump was just not a competent president. <laughs> and you had members of his own administration, whether it was Secretary of State Rex Tillerson or whether it was his chief of staff, John Kelly, or his Secretary of Defense, Jim Mattis, or his Attorney General, Bill Barr, when you had his own inner circle saying that he was not a competent president and that he's not necessarily a good guy, I think that changes how you approach politics because it's no longer trying to choose the Republicans and the Democrats because is the Republican Party really the same as it was during Mitt Romney's time or not? To me, the way that I look at the Republican Party is I think that it's, it's a party that's been breaking apart ever since the George W. Bush administration. It's transforming into something that's very different and something that's really not very democratic. And so it becomes a much different calculation in terms of what you're looking at. If you're pro-democracy, I don't really see how you can be a Donald Trump supporter. 
if you're pro competent government and you want government to work, I don't really see how you can become a Donald Trump supporter. So it's a little bit different when Mitt Romney was running or when John McCain was running. I think both of those men, you could make a, a much bigger case that you may disagree with them, but you wouldn't question their own loyalty towards the country. You would just say that they have a different way that they're trying to get something done. They actually had healthcare policies. They actually wanted to gain power to achieve certain means. I mean, you may disagree with them or you may agree with them, but that's a much different thing that we're facing right now. So we're, we're in a very unique time period. But again, I think it's actually an extremely interesting time period because not since the Civil War have we seen one of the major parties break apart and I firmly believe that that's what we've been witnessing is that the Republican Party is breaking apart. It's a potentially ugly process and we're not sure how it's going to go or what or what's going to come out the other end. It is certainly intellectually fascinating to watch. Yeah, you kind of anticipated my next question, which was going to be about how does politics in the time of Trump, where he's the center of attention and the decision is really go his way or stay with regular politics. Like I've talked to professors of political science at universities who've changed the way they've taught in the last number of years. They've just felt a responsibility to say, this is different now. And to kind of come off the sidelines and say, we have a real problem here. I kind of hear that out of you a bit. How does that affect what you choose to share or how you how you share it or does it that kind of responsibility to the democracy oh yeah no absolutely as a political journalist wrote me uh, several weeks after donald trump took office i won't say who he is but he's a very prominent political journalist who um emailed me and he said he was discerning a tilt towards the democrats in in some of my coverage and he asked is that what you really want to do because he's really found that it's a much better way to play it down the middle. It was really interesting because it was not something that I had intentionally done, but I was simply trying to cover politics in my own way. When I thought about it, I really concluded that it's not possible to stay in the middle, so to speak, during the Trump era, because that suggests that politics is that same playing field that we had when it was John McCain against Barack Obama or Mitt Romney against Barack Obama, none of what we're seeing since Trump came on the scene is normal. And it also ignores the idea that we have a Republican Party that started coming apart in the George W. Bush administration. You had this Reagan coalition that had served them well, which was a kind of like a troika, you know, three groups of people. There were the Wall Street Republicans who cared about limited government and low taxes. You had the national security hawks who wanted a strong national defense and take on the Soviet Union, take on the Russians. And then you had the evangelical Christians who had their conservative social agenda that they were most concerned about, abortion being one of the big issues. And that Reagan elegantly stitched together that coalition. And it was very successful for Republicans for two decades. When George W. Bush came along, that coalition broke apart. We had a financial crisis, which led the Wall Street Republicans to be dismayed by how George W. Bush handled that. George Bush bungled two wars, one in Afghanistan, one in Iraq. So the national security hawks were really questioning what the Republican Party really stood for at that time. The only piece of the Republican coalition that stood by George Bush at the end of his term were the evangelical Christians. And at that point, I really thought the party was, was breaking apart in contrast to the Democrats, which had much more ideological consistency across the party. So people talk about Bernie Sanders and Joe Manchin being so different, but the reality is that both of them are on the same political spectrum. They have differing views along the same logical path. And both of them actually want to provide healthcare for children and families. They just have a different approach in terms of how they're doing it, but they probably agree on more than they disagree. On the Republican Party, it's not the same progression from left to right, so to speak. You have It's a very different haphazard type party, and you have someone like Donald Trump come along. As I thought that Republican Party was 
falling apart. And John McCain recognized it. And he reached out to a Sarah Palin to try to appeal to the more populist side of the party. And then Donald Trump comes along and actually hijacks the Republican Party, changes much of their agenda from foreign policy to even taxes and the size of government. And it became like a party about Donald Trump. I think the Republican Party, when Trump leaves the scene, I think the Republican Party is going to be in deep trouble trying to figure out who it is they are, because I don't think they know who they are anymore. Republicans used to argue eloquently about free trade and about how important free trade was to a functioning capitalist society. And Republicans don't believe what they used to believe on free trade. It's a very different because a very different position because they're appealing to a different coalition. And while the Democrats have changed as well in relation to this, it is the Republicans who I think they don't make logical sense in terms of what their policies are. And and as I mentioned earlier, they don't even put their policies out for voters. Donald Trump doesn't even have a platform anymore. And if he gets the nomination in 2024, as it looks likely he will, he won't have a platform either. It will be all about Donald Trump. And I think that's a very different set of circumstances here. So again, I've never said I'm not unbiased. I don't believe that people can really be unbiased, but my biases are are there for everybody to see. It's it's in my news judgment. Every single post that goes up on Political Wire shows you my bias. I'm telling you, I think this is interesting, important, or both. That's really what I'm trying to do. Have you seen the new book coming out from Patrick Ruffini, which is about how the coalition for the Republicans has changed? In his view, has become more working class. He's somewhat mocking Democrats in trying to take the party of the people tag away from that party, which traditionally had it. But there is something to some of the moves that Trump made, which seem to have found favor among lower information voters, working class voters that were not traditional Republican. Is that a breaking a part of a party or is that kind of a rolling realignment that he is part of driving? Well, I have seen Patrick's book. It's an interesting theory. I think he's trying to piece together what's happening and put together a narrative towards what he thinks this will end up as. And I think it's a little early to say that it's going to end up like that, but there are some threads there that he's absolutely right about. You know, 20, 25 years ago, when I first started Political Wire, if you wanted to ask a voter one question that would most determine what political party they were part of, it was, do you go to church each week? And if you went to church every week, most likely you were a Republican and you weren't a Democrat. The same question is less certain today, but the question that is most predictive today is, did you go to college? And if you went to college, you're more likely to be a Democrat than be a Republican. So there is a realignment obviously going and what Patrick I think has jumped ahead on is he has made the point that working class African-Americans, working class Hispanics are part of this new Republican coalition and, and that Democrats are losing those voters. And I don't think that the evidence is there yet. I think that there's been some polling that suggests that may be a problem for Democrats and that their support may be getting softer in those areas. But I don't think that that has been uh, proven or concluded. And I think that there are obviously plenty of Democrats, Bernie Sanders being one, Joe Biden being another, who has spent an awful lot of time focused on working class voters and appealing to them. You know, Joe Biden is probably, as he said, and, and I agree with, he's been the most pro-union president that we've seen in my lifetime. And by definition, those are working class voters. And there's no indication that Democrats have lost African-Americans. There's probably a little bit more evidence that the, their support among Hispanic voters is a little softer, uh, particularly when you get to some more social issues. It remains to be seen. So I think I think Patrick is probably jumping ahead farther than I would right now. But there's obviously a lot of changes going on. I personally think it's hitting the Republican Party more so than the Democrats. And I think that the Republican Party is much more threatened when Trump goes away. Trump is like the band-aid that is keeping it together at this point. And I think if Trump is not there, 
I think the Republican Party just breaks apart into multiple pieces. Do you think about the competition much? There's lots and lots and lots of different sources of political information. How do you think about that space when you are considering your site as a business? That's an interesting question. So, you know, when I first started this, I really thought, you know, with my love of computers and computer programming, I really thought that there would be a way for me to automate political wire and that I could scour the internet and that I could pull together the best stories in some sort of programmatic way. And if anything, over all of these years, I've found that human judgment is significantly more important than anything that can be automated. And a lot of the potential competition that I've had that has tried to automate things, it just hasn't succeeded. And believe me, I've tried too. I've always thought that that was the holy grail. Can you imagine if you could create a site that could you know, create itself every day and, and be interesting? And I just don't think that that's possible. So that means that the human factor, the editor, which is me, becomes a lot more important. So there are other really smart people in politics. They're on Twitter and they tweet out interesting things and that's fantastic. And some of them have websites, although many fewer have websites of their own today than used to. And that's one thing I'm actually quite surprised by. So many people have just decided that they would make their presence on social media. And the reality is, is that all of those people, I follow them on social media and they inform what I do on Political Wire, but they're not really competitors in the same way. They may have their own audiences and their own followings, but they're doing something a little bit different that I'm trying and their motivations are different too. My motivations are really simply to put together a column every day, so to speak, of what I think is the most important stuff in politics right now. What about a site like 538? I've obviously linked to 538, you know, hundreds of times. I think that they do some really interesting analysis, but they're not competitors to Political Wire. The secret sauce of Political Wire is that I don't fear any competition. If someone makes a really good point, I link to it. I want you to see it. And so in a way, all of those really smart people become vested in the success of Political Wire because I drive them an awful lot of traffic. And I think that's kind of one of those interesting things that's developed. I, I'm not scared of linking to somebody who has a really good point. If they have a really good point, I know my readers want to know about it. And so I don't consider them competitors. I, I, I tip my hat to them. That's a really interesting piece of analysis that you have. That's a really interesting point that you've made. And I want to share that with my readers. And as a result, their brilliance simply helps me reinforce my audience. So you're kind of a digital media entrepreneur and Political Wire is just one of the things that you have out there. Can you talk about some of the others? How does it come together to actually make a living for you? Where's the main source of revenue and, and how has that changed over time? I do have roughly four sites that are in the, the political space. There's Political Wire, there's Political Job Hunt, which allows people to find jobs in politics and public policy. There is the Political Dictionary, which is one of my personal favorites. Then there's a site called Electoral Vote Map, which provides an interactive electoral map. Political Wire is the big one. So when you talk about me being able to make a living off this site, it's Political Wire is really the main thing. And right now I have two, two major revenue streams, one of which is advertising. So there's a free site, which is supported by advertising. And then for the most loyal readers that I have, they become members and the advertising goes away for members when they log in and they get all of these extra bonuses, bonus newsletters. They get no advertising on the site, some new features that I have. I have, you know, it's, it becomes a very different site for the people who are willing to subscribe. Those are the two revenue streams. And I've always wanted to have both because I, I've never wanted to shut down political wire to everybody. And there are some people who can't afford to pay an annual membership fee. And so I, I would love Political Wire to be there for them and they're supported by advertising. But those are the two main revenue streams. Over the years, that's changed fairly significantly because digital advertising has changed. When I first went off on my own, I had a partnership with CQ Roll Call, which was owned by The Economist at the time. 
I essentially licensed my advertising inventory to them. And their advertising model was that they were putting forward advertisements towards people who are politically influential, many of whom read Political Wire. So it made an awful lot of sense. In the intervening time, programmatic advertising has emerged where it's easier to find those same people, not really because of the site that they read. You can find them on any site that they read. So they might be reading a cooking blog, but they might be politically influential and programmatic advertising allows you to reach them there. Digital advertising has changed dramatically. And and if you go back to the very early days, I would actually have sponsorships where in syndication even, where I would syndicate a daily briefing to other political websites and that 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 was the business model then. But so business models change all the time on the internet. It's one of the things that I find most exciting about being an entrepreneur in this space because I love keeping up with the technology and what's changing and how people make a living doing this. I find it endlessly fascinating. The other sites, the satellite sites that I have, each have their own business models as well. You have political job hunt where people pay to post a listing because they're looking to hire somebody. That has become a very important site for me and very successful site as well. My political dictionary site is different in the fact that most people who come to it, they don't bookmark political dictionary because they come and read the dictionary every day. What they do is they're interested. There's a political phrase, there's a word that they've never heard of before and they search for it and they kind of find the political dictionary through their searches on Google mainly. And so I have a different type of audience that comes to that site. And I like to introduce those readers uh, of the dictionary. People come by the dictionary. I like to reintroduce them to political wire as well. It's a great source of new readers um, because they're interested in some political concept that they've never heard about. And they read about these definitions, but really it's a great site for political junkies because there's so many, our language has changed so dramatically because of politics and so many things that we've never thought about are really some of these political terms that have developed over the years. And then the newest of the sites is this interactive electoral map, which I find fun, particularly as we head into election year. It's it's fun for readers to be able to click on the various states and make their own projections about what might happen in the election. What percentage of your readers are, are members? I'm a member, and I was just thinking that I haven't been seeing the ads. I might want to see them. Does that diminish the interest in an advertiser because they are not getting to the most devoted readers? Or how do you think about that kind of category of readers and and how to treat them? That's a very fair and valid point. And from a business perspective, you would see, you know, I subscribe to the New York Times, but the New York Times is still showing me ads. And in some ways, it's actually an easier sale because the New York Times knows who I am. I'm logged into the site. They know how many times I read it and they show me certain ads. They even know what my interests are based upon what I read around the site. I made the decision that for my most loyal readers, those who are the ones who are willing to become members of the site. So thank you for being a member. The vast majority of people do find advertising annoying. If they would like to see advertising, they can always log out of the site or they can open up another browser if for some reason they wanted to see it. But the majority of my readers would prefer to not see it. And it's just one of those things that I can give them. Interestingly enough, it's not the most important feature when I do surveys of my subscribers and to ask them, what do they like the most? Fortunately, they like some of the pieces that I write just for the members the most, um, which indicates that I'm also serving them well. I no longer write for other publications. Like I would write for in the past for the week or the daily beast, but I no longer do that. I only write for the subscribers of political wire. So if you want to see what I think specifically about a certain issue, you subscribe and that becomes the most important thing. But those subscribers, they also like some of the other features that I have on the site. A 24 seven trending news page is a very popular feature. And then obviously I have a few bonus newsletters that I also offer readers that I've made licensing deals with a couple other newsletters to be able to share some of their insights and their publications with my readers as well. But it's just a decision I made. I don't know if there's a right or a wrong decision, but I, I'm fortunate that I make a, I make a decent living and I'm able to support myself and my family and business models evolve in all sorts of ways, but that's how this one has evolved. Has this 
given you opportunity to be like a paid speaker about politics, other commentators, the Cooks and the Rothenbergs and people like that have translated that into, you know, go speak at some corporate event. Do you do that? So I have done that occasionally. I don't actually enjoy it as much. And so if you're one of the niche DC publications like um, the Cook Political Report or um, the, the Rothenberg Political Report, which is now Inside Elections, that is a significant piece of their business model is that they have speaking fees and they speak at conferences, mostly in DC, but sometimes around the country and even around the world. And that's great. It's great that they're able to do that. They also, to subscribe to their publications, they charge significantly more than it costs to become a subscriber of Political Wire. What I have really liked to do is I really love that consumer space. I want not only the person who is a lobbyist or who might be a political staffer or work on political campaigns full-time, I like getting those people as subscribers, but I also like getting the guy who just happens to live in Omaha, Nebraska, and is really passionate about politics. I like the fact that he wants to subscribe too. So my audience, I think, is is bigger that way because I don't charge as much to become a subscriber. I don't have to do paid speeches and I would feel the need to disclose them every time I, if I spoke at a healthcare conference, I'd have to uh, disclose that I got paid a certain amount of money at a healthcare conference. So, you know, people would start questioning some of my judgment on some of these issues. There was a time, and I don't know to what extent it continues, but I think it diminished quite a bit where there were a lot of state-based political blogs, Politics New Jersey or Blue Oregon, and there was some Colorado politics. Have you thought about a state-based political wire that it would be read by people much more focused on that state's politics? I've explored that. I've been even explored partnering with people who have done this. I mean, most of these local or state-level political blogs that are still out there and, and I'm, if, if there's anything that surprised me over the last 20 years is how few of them there are. The audience that they can aggregate is just not large enough to become a viable business in some ways. So some of the bigger states, you know, a, a place like New York has a much more vibrant political scene than some other states do. So I think it would probably be more possible in New York. And there are some very good local political blogs in New York. While I've thought about that and while I've obviously talked with some of these other people who run these state blogs, it's nothing that I've really wanted to do. I, I think it's I think I'm pretty fortunate to be able to feature some of the really interesting stories that are going on locally that most people wouldn't otherwise know about, but at the same time have this national focus and also as a result a much larger audience. So what would it surprise people that you read? I mean, obviously you read the big newspapers. But I don't know what what else would be on the list that I might not imagine. I think most people would not know that I pay an, a lot of attention to social media, uh, well beyond just Twitter. Twitter is obviously very popular among political junkies, um, or X as they call it now, and whatever it's become. It, it's become less interesting, obviously, um, over the course of the last year since Elon Musk took it over. But some social media or, or some kind of like uh, these new platforms like TikTok, I've increasingly found TikTok very interesting, interesting on how, uh, how it, it's a potential threat to this country and to this democracy. If the Chinese owners decide to tweak the algorithm, I find that pretty fascinating. And so I've tried to understand TikTok and how it works. But there's also people who have found that platform extremely useful in promoting their political views, pr promoting their political takes. Uh, I find that interesting. I, have, I am, you have you thought about having a TikTok presence? No, I have not. Um, I don't think I'd be very good at it, but I admire people who've done that. There, there are so many different platforms out there, you know, Facebook and Instagram and and, and X and all the rest. There's so many platforms that you could spend time on. I think it takes unique skills to be good at any one of them. There's almost nobody who's good at all of them. So I don't necessarily think that would be my, my big thing right now. I like podcasts, actually. That's the... <laughs> I've noticed that. And tell me what, what you've tried in the podcasting world. And I know that your co-author on the book that you wrote 
has some, and you often link to, is Chris Reback? Is that how you, how you say it? Chris Reback, yeah. He's, yeah. Uh, we went to graduate school together. We wrote a book together years ago. We actually were, he was my partner when we, when we launched Political Insider, which was the predecessor to Political Wire. And we actually have a podcast now that is only for Political Wire members called Trial Balloon. And you have to be a member to be able to listen to it, which is an interesting idea of putting a podcast behind a paywall, but I've got the technology so that it works actually quite well. Every member is able to get their own custom feed that works as long as you're a subscriber. And it has become an extremely interesting thing from my point of view. I really enjoy doing it. It comes out once a week. Chris and I talk about, you know, for about 20 minutes about the most important news of that week. Readers have really embraced it. It's been a very fun thing to do. So I've really enjoyed exploring podcasting. And and I've got some other ideas in, that I'd like to do in the future. Like what? One of the things I'm thinking about is I would love a podcast. I mean, it's, it's, it's actually similar to what you're doing. Everybody, you, you can have a million podcasts talking to the same, you know, political consultants, the same politicians, you know, I mean, how many, everyone knows what David Axelrod thinks, for instance. Do you need to listen to another podcast with David Axelrod on your podcast? Well, you know, he's interesting but do you really need another podcast with him? I find people from all walks of life who actually are doing other things. They might have completely different professions. They might be interested in technology, for instance, but they're really passionate about politics. And I I think sometimes their takes are pretty interesting. I have a friend who's involved in advertising and he has really interesting political views uh, as a result in their, their views that are not influenced by that same political echo chamber. And so I think sometimes uh, a podcast featuring some of these very different voices, smart voices, but very different voices to get them involved on their takes on politics could be interesting. But we'll see. There's only so much time in the day. <laughs> I was asked to have this podcast be part of something, a democracy podcast network. And they asked me to submit my best episode of the year. I do this three times a week. It's hard to pick that. Like I interviewed ex-Senator Doug Jones, or I usually find my guests that it's the first time they've ever been on a podcast to be more interesting. They're less practiced in what they say. They're less predictable. They often are full of energy for what they do. A voter registration organization in her high school and grew it to hundreds of of high schools and then went off and, you know, got through Harvard and now is doing a research institute around that. And I put her in as well. And I just said to them, you guys pick. I think I might pick one of these unknown people over a known person, but you decide. I often learn more sitting next to someone on an airplane or a bus who isn't a political professional where are you coming from? You came from rural Ohio and you told me how scared you were about going to the big city that you actually saw the, the, the skyscape of Manhattan and turned around and drove back home because it just terrified you so much. Well, that's what happens sometimes to someone who's lived in a town of 800 worries about the crime and all that. Like you get insights that way. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I mean, there's definitely, you know, this concept of a bubble in the, you know, the DC beltway bubble and that so many journalists are, are stuck in between the Washington DC, New York corridor. And, you know, I can be guilty of that as well. And that's why I think it really is interesting sometimes to just get out of that. Just as I, anybody who reads political wire knows that I love to travel and I, I've been all over the world. And one of the reasons I like that is you simply get completely different perspectives on what's going on. And it's particularly interesting. You travel around the world and you get people commenting on the Donald Trump presidency. <laughs> it is very different. The reactions that you get, you know, if you're, you know, in, you know, Argentina, than if you're, uh, you know, just talking to another person in New York, but the same is true within this country, obviously is it's a very big country and there's a lot of different views, but uh, I like talking to smart people. Um, And I like, uh, you know, and sometimes I wonder if there wouldn't be an interesting podcast, really just trying with like a laser focus to get those really unique views from very smart people who just who don't really work in politics, but who, who follow politics and who really enjoy politics and who are very informed voters otherwise. 
So with 25 years of political wire under your belt, are there any posts or days that stand out for you in your memory as I'd like to be remembered for this? You know, I'm really happy about how I phrased this and it was funny or what, what are highlights for you? I'm most proud of, of all of it. Like, uh, you know, the fact that political wire has existed this long, the fact that I had the inclination to even start it at a time when there weren't such things as blogs to be able to continually build a, an audience to ultimately be able to quit my day job and to actually, you know, support my family. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, using this. And that is, that's by far what I'm most proud of. Like I said earlier, I, I never tire of it. So I expect that I'll kind of do it until, you know, I take my last breath. I don't see any reason why I, why I wouldn't do it. I enjoy it just as much as I did 25 years ago. I, actually, I probably enjoy it more because I have the ability to reach so many more people. And, and it gets kind of addictive. Just interviewing you, I know that with these interviews, doing them three a week, there's a kind of a high to having a conversation with someone that you wouldn't have had the chance to talk to otherwise, to be learning about that, to be sharing it. I think it's a very similar thing. You feel like you're in relationship to the guest or the news item or to the community that's that's listening or reading it. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. I mean, you and I have known of each other for years. This is the first time we've ever spoken. And so it's, that's really interesting, right? So we've obviously been around the outskirts of what what each of us do for a living. And, and we've seen that, but now we actually get to have a conversation about politics. You, you were kind enough to post a few of the releases of my political data viz posters back in the day, which I appreciate. That's right. No, they were very popular. I remember. So, you know, but that's the type of thing. I, I have this interesting, this audience that's really interested in, uh, in anything and everything politics. And so if, uh, if somebody comes up with something interesting like that, you know, I'm always happy to share it. So is there a question that I should have asked you that I didn't? No, I think, I, I mean, it's actually been much more comprehensive than I was expecting. So we've talked a long time about, about political wire and where it came from. I was surprised at how we how we talked about the bias of Political Wire and the fact that it's not a pro democratic site, but it, you could be mistaken if you thought it was. Sometimes, and sometimes if you look at the comments, they tend to lean that way. Although they're like the comments anywhere, that it's, it's it's not always the best place to burrow down. Yeah, no, a tiny, tiny fraction of the audience leaves comments, but they're actually pretty interesting when you, when you, I will say this, that for a political website, there is probably some of the most interesting comments you can get. They actually stay above the fray most of the time, but you know, every once in a while there's disruption there as well. Well, great to talk to you, Tegan, and good to like put a face on, on the site. Anything else you want to say? No, I really appreciate you having me on and I look forward to uh, linking to this and sharing this discussion with my readers. Excellent. That was Tegan Goddard. He is at politicalwire.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.